Uh, let's take our Bibles and uh, turn to Micah chapter 1. It's okay if you need to be seated. That's fine too. I would dismiss the children at this time. The children will be singing in a few weeks during the morning service. And so there's going to be a brief practice just for a little bit. If the children are in the nursery, they'll be collected and returned there. Uh, and uh, your children from here will be returned in just a little bit. So Micah chapter 1, that's on page 776, if you would like to follow along with a Bible from the church. There should be one right in front of you in that pew. You could grab that, turn to page 776. Otherwise, Micah chapter 1, I'm going to begin reading at verse 6, and I'll read down through the end of the chapter. This is God's word for us this morning, and here's what God says. Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards, I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire. All her idols I will lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. For this I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. For her wound is incurable. It has come to Judah. It has reached to the gate of my people, to Jerusalem. Tell it not in Gath, weep not at all in Beth Laafra. Roll yourselves in the dust. Pass it on your way, uh, inhabitants of Shafer. In nakedness and shame, uh, the inhabitants of Zeonin. Do not come out. The lamentation of Beth Ezel shall take away from you its standing place. For the inhabitants of Mayroth, wait not anxiously for good, because disaster has come down from the Lord to the gate of Jerusalem. Harness the steeds to the chariots, inhabitants of Lachish. It was the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion, for in you were found the transgressions of Israel. Therefore you shall give parting gifts to Morasheph Gath, the houses of Exib uh, shall be a deceitful thing to the kings of Israel. I will again bring a conqueror to you, inhabitants of Mer- Merishah. The glory of Israel shall come to Abdalam. Make yourselves bald and cut off your hair for the children of your delight. Make yourselves as bald as the eagle, for they shall go from you into exile. You may be seated. Father, thank you for your word. For there is no word like your word. Father, our prayer now is that we, as we now come and look more closely at what we've just read, that you would help us. 
Father, in particular, that the very same spirit that moved Micah to pen these words would now move in our hearts and lives, that you would show us wonderful things from this word, that you would change us by your spirit through your word. So help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we began the book of Micah last week. We are looking at three of the minor prophets this fall, and uh, you, I warned us last week, um, it, it's, it's, uh, it's a miracle that anybody came back. Uh, the, the, the prophets are just very dark and ominous uh, with strong messages of judgment. And yet if we persevere, make our way through these, we'll also see wonderful messages of of hope and salvation as well. This morning, what I particularly want us to focus on is when he speaks of, uh, in verse 8, and he says, For I will lament and wail. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. While the prophet Micah is bringing strong words of condemnation, strong words of of judgment against uh, Samaria and Jerusalem, I would just remind us in a moment what we're talking about with that, but as the Lord, uh, through the prophet Micah, is bringing these strong words of judgment to Samaria and to Jerusalem, uh, the prophet is, is not tickled to be bringing this message. He is lamenting. He is sad. His heart is sad over this. Now, I would remind us, uh, what, what are we talking about here? Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom, which became known as Israel. Now, up to that point, up till about 930 B.C., the whole nation was called Israel. It was comprised of 12 tribes, but the nation split, and, and 10 of the 12 tribes became the northern kingdom of Israel. The capital of that kingdom was Samaria. So when we see Samaria mentioned here, think northern kingdom, think the northern kingdom, which is known as Israel. Um, and, um, and, and, and from, the, from its inception, the northern kingdom of Israel uh, was bent on idolatry. Micah is locating their judgment because of that idolatry, but, but, but Micah is not gloating over that, either that idolatry or the judgment that's coming for that idolatry. In fact, within just a matter of, of years, probably just a decade or two from when Micah is issuing this in the year 722 B.C., the, 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 the northern kingdom of Israel and uh, the capital city of Samaria will be decimated, destroyed by the Assyrians. God will raise up the Assyrians as instruments of his judgment and take out the northern kingdom of Israel and the city of Samaria. And he's lamenting because he knows these things will happen. Now, the other week... Um, we uh, we had we watched uh, five of our grandkids for about four days, uh, and uh, and so I think I, I 
I, I needed a vacation after that, but I didn't have one. But, uh, but that's okay. But we, uh, I pick out movies uh, uh, for the kids to occasionally watch. And uh, my oldest granddaughter is now on to me. She, I picked out another movie, and she said, Papa, you always pick sad movies. And I thought about it, and I thought, wow, the last four movies I had them watch were all sad movies. So she's got me. So I'm, I'm not opposed to being happy. In fact, truth be, I would rather be happy than be sad. But I do think that something that our culture, something that my grandkids, something that we need to grapple with is, you know what? You can learn a lot in sorrow and in sadness. There's great benefit to laments. And, and we're going to benefit from Micah's lament here because he's going to teach us um, uh, something about lament in, in, in this passage. In fact, the two things I want us to think about briefly this morning, if briefly is a category, but first of all, in a, they're in the, in the bulletin insert if that's helpful to you. Um, we, we want to think about what Micah says to us about lamenting the extensiveness of idolatry. And in particular, we'll, we'll, we'll just focus on, on, on verses um, 6, 7, and 8 about the extensiveness because Samaria is a poster child of uh, the extensiveness of idolatry. When you go deep into idolatry, this is the fruit of that. But then he shifts... And uh, by verse 9, he shifts from the extensiveness of idolatry to lamenting the expansiveness of idolatry. Not only was the northern kingdom extensively neck deep into idolatry, but now their idolatrous ways began seeping down, spreading into expanding, crossing the borders into the southern kingdom of Judah, and in particular, uh, corrupting the, the worship in Jerusalem. Look at verse 7 again that locates the, the, the problem. What, the, what is got Micah so sad? What is the, the occasion for his lament. He says there, all her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire. All her idols I will lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them. Now, that's an interesting phrase there. It could, it could, and it, it maybe even has a dual meaning, but it, it could mean that, that um, part of the idolatrous practices of the the northern kingdom and of Samaria involved um, uh, cult prostitution, um, uh, physical impropriety in conjunction with their false worship. Or, or it could just be uh, an indication that it, the scripture teaches us that, that there is a correlation between spiritual idolatry and spiritual adultery because when we worship a false god, we are unfaithful to the one true God. But anyway, he says, from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them and to the fee of a prostitute she, she shall return, which is probably an allusion to the fact that, and this is, this is kind of the irony here, is that 
the people that God is going to use as an instrument to judge the northern kingdom of Israel for their idolatry is themselves an idolatrous people. So these are heavy words. First of all, it might be helpful to give a definition since we're going to be bouncing around the word idolatry a whole bunch this morning. Idolatry is the, the worship of anyone or anything other than the one true God. Idolatry is elevating any created thing, elevating any created being above God as though a created thing was on par with the ultimate eternal thing. Remember something we said last week, and that is the prophets, so Micah, the prophets were covenant enforcers. They were looking back and reminding Israel, this is the covenant that you agreed to with the Lord. This is what he promised he would do. This is what he expected they would do. And much of the work of the prophets was reminding Israel of their covenant commitments and, uh, and, 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 and how they have violated their covenant stipulations and God's expectations upon them. And uh, the, you might remember that the first specific item uh, that Moses put on the list of expectations is there in Exodus 23, you shall have no other gods before me. And coupled with that, because normally when we, when we think of an idol, we, we think of uh, something made or created, an object made or created uh, that we bow to. And he would go on to the second command in Exodus 24, and you shall, you, uh, you shall not make for yourself an idol. The first specific item that was put on the docket for indictment from the prophet Micah was the first issue that the Lord had laid out in the 10 words. The first thing that the Lord wants you and I to concern ourselves with is that we have no other God before the one true God. Our first ailment because of the human condition is that we will look for and search out and desire and to seek something other than the one true God to worship. So the first matter of indictment by the prophet Micah upon the people of Israel is still the first matter that is indictable by all of humanity. Ezekiel 14 adds a really interesting phrase to our discussion about idolatry. As Ezekiel is prophesying at a time a little bit after Micah, he describes the people of Israel and Judah. He says, these men have taken idols into their hearts. That's an interesting phrase in our understanding of idol, uh, idols and idolatry. 
Oftentimes, you and I might think, you know, we're, hey, we're modern, sophisticated people. I mean, we, we're, we're intelligent species. And uh, it's those, uh, it's those um, primal cave people that were uh, uh, worshipers of idols. They would make an idol and they would worship it. They would bow, literally bow down uh, to this thing that they've made and, and worship it as though it was a, a god. They carve an image and they pray to it or they worship it. And, and, and many people still do that today. E- even uh, even sub-Christian uh, uh, segments uh, uh, bow before carved images and statues and pray to them and worship them. And yet what Ezekiel helps us to grapple with is that um, idolatry doesn't have to have a particular carved or made object that we're bowing before or seeking or desiring. Idolatry is a posture of our hearts. Uh, Idolatry consists of a desire in our hearts Idolatry is oriented by a disposition um, in our hearts. So you see, the, Micah's lament over idolatry has, has not expired because idolatry has not expired. Most of us don't bow before created things. Uh, well, except for the 70-inch ones on the wall. Now, anything under 40 inches can't be idolatry, uh, which happens to be what size TV I have. But, uh, but, but uh, honestly, it doesn't have to be 70 inches. It doesn't have to be 40 inches. It could be four and a half inches. We bow before things and think that these things offer us the hope and the promise and the joy and the strength and the peace that can only come before, um, from seeking the, the one true God. You see, each of us, we would be amiss, we would be foolish, we would be looking down on those poor, ignorant Old Testament people uh, with, uh, with our own issues if we did not realize that idolatry is just as real and, uh, and gnarly and lamentable today as it was then in Micah's day. Each and every day, you and I, each and every day, we are battling a battle in our hearts for the desire and the disposition and the posture of our hearts that intersects with this matter of idols of the heart. Each of us live in the acknowledgement Uh, of, in the valuing of, in the treasuring of, in the savoring of, in the honoring of, in the fearing of, in the cherishing of, in the relying upon, and in the making much of someone or something that is worship. After we're done doing what we're doing here this morning, which we call this worship, then you know what we're doing after we leave out of here? Not something altogether different than worship. We're just doing corporate gathered worship here. But when we leave, we scatter. And uh, what we don't leave at the door is our bent and desire and disposition and posture to worship someone or something, to acknowledge 
something as great, to value something as great, to treasure something as great, to savor something as great, to honor something as great, to fear something as great, to cherish something as great, to rely upon something as great, to make much of something that we perceive to be as great. In fact, our battle with issues of idolatry and the promotion of idols in our hearts is linked to the greatest wickedness in the universe. There is nothing greater in, the, uh, in terms of wickedness in the universe than idolatry. It is cosmic, it is the cosmic crime, for it is mutiny against the one true God who made us. Jeremiah 2, verse 13 says this, my people have committed two evils. Only two, really? Well, let's just start with the top two. My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me. The greatest evil in the universe is to not acknowledge God as the greatest, to not value God as the greatest, to not treasure God as the greatest, to not savor God as the greatest, to not honor God as the greatest, to not fear God as the greatest, to not cherish God as the greatest, to not rely upon God as the greatest, to not make much of God as the greatest. The greatest crime in all the universe is the human heart that would put someone or something other than God at the spot in which he alone is worshipped above everything and anything else. My people have committed two great evils, says the Lord. They have forsaken me. And notice what he describes. The spring of living waters. What an interesting portrait that is. Do you, do, you, do you feel and do you hear uh, just this, uh, this crystal clear, cold, bubbling water coming out of the ground? Do, do, you, do you instinctively feel like that? Yeah, that, that is what will quench my thirst. That is what will satisfy my soul. That is what will feed me and sustain me. That is what will supply me what I need. But God says that you've, you've abandoned the spring of living waters. My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, the spring of living waters, and they have hewn, hewed, dug for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that don't hold water. We have turned our back upon the bubbling, cool, beautiful string of water, and we've gone out back into the sand pit, and we've tried to grab us a handful of water out of the sand pit, and all we have is a mouth of sand. Romans 1 tells us that all of humanity, and this is the reason why uh, Micah is announcing judgment on Samaria and eventually announcing judgment upon 
Judah, and this is why Paul is announcing judgment upon all of mankind, because it says there in Romans 1, we have exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and we have worshipped created things rather than the creator of all things. Lament, for there is a severe pandemic that has infected the human heart. There is an idolatry syndrome that has resulted in an acute worship disorder, and it is fatal. The greatest commandment, you shall love the Lord God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and all of your strength has been replaced. And with idols in our hearts, we lose discernment. We lose the ability to see those idols for what they are. They are worthless. They, all of their promises are false and bogus. One of my sons sent me a, a, a video this week, um, and um, it, was, it was precious. It was... Uh, uh, it looks like they were outside in the backyard sitting at a table. It was a father and it was a son. The son was probably six, seven, eight years old. Um, and the father is having a conversation with his son. And uh, he, um, he, he puts down on the table over here to uh, the right uh, a stack of bills. It looks like it's a stack of hundreds and a stack of fifties. And he says, son, um, would you like... Uh, $10,000? By the way, I'm not going to play this game with my sons. Just, uh, just, I don't want to get their hopes up. But, but uh, son, uh, would you like $10,000? So there's a stack of hundreds and a stack of fifties, $10,000. Or would you like two Oreos? And he sets those two Oreos down on the left-hand side of the table. You already know where the, where the video is going with this. The, the little boy, six, seven, eight years old, which is just a reminder as to why you don't let kids be in charge. You don't let kids make decisions for themselves. You certainly don't let kids figure out what gender they might be. But I, but I digress. I, either, either way, the child did not have the capacity to, to compare the value uh, between uh, $10,000 and two Oreo cookies. Unfortunately, because of the, the blindness and the corruption in our minds that sin has brought, sadly, you and I do not have the ability to discern the difference in value between the idols that are put in front of us that look really yummy and the Lord. That's why, sadly, tragically, the lament continues for he says in verse 9, for her wound is incurable. The, the, the tragic lamentable situation that Samaria finds themselves in 
that they have become like the very death, dumb, and blind idols that, they've worship, that they worship. They cannot see what true value and what true uh, honor and what, what true cherishing should consist of. They have become blind and lost the ability to discern. There's no cure. Quickly, not only is he lamenting because of the extensiveness of their idolatry, he's lamenting because of the expansiveness of their idolatry. And that's where he picks up in verse 9, the second part, where he said, after he says, for her wound is incurable, and it has come to Judah. In other words, it's crossed the border. It has crossed over into the southern kingdom of Judah. Uh, it, it has reached to the gate of my people, to Jerusalem. And then what he does in, in the verses that follow, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, he, he mentions about 10 cities that, that are all close proximity around Jerusalem. And, and uh, he, uh, he, he speaks to them, but, but really what he is targeting is that the very uh, weeping and, and crying and sorrow and sadness, uh, uh, lamenting that he had for the northern kingdom of Samaria, he, he, he shifts gears and, and now that same sort of lament is being felt and expressed toward Jerusalem. In fact, some 20 years after Samaria is wiped out, the Assyrians will come down and surround Jerusalem. They will be just a hair's breadth away from their final destruction as well. And, 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 and yet God will preserve them at that moment, and we'll say more about that in the weeks to come, Lord willing. But, but for now, we, we just understand that Judah too will be judged. Uh, why? Because the sin of Samaria, Samaria the, the idolatry that they practiced, has crossed the border and spread to Jerusalem And all that's left for Jerusalem to do is to figure out, do they have enough sense to weep over the destruction that awaits them? For the sake of time, I, I'm going to kind of bring this to a close uh, in, in a, I hope, a hopeful note. For as verses 8 through 16 orient us to the lament over the expansion of idolatry into the southern kingdom of Judah and into the city of Jerusalem. I would remind us of our Lord Jesus Christ, who in Matthew 23, verse 37, stood outside the city of Jerusalem and lamented. O oh, Jerusalem, O oh, Jerusalem, the city that kills prophets and stones those who are sent to do it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. And you were not willing.
They did not see that Jesus stood outside the city lamenting for their soon destruction and yet offering them a way of escape from the judgment that would fall upon them. You see, when I said a minute ago concerning Samaria, and I infer it for Jerusalem as well, that their wound is incurable. That's not completely true. They can't cure their own wound. But the one who stood outside the city gates weeping and lamenting for them. The Lord Jesus Christ is the one who could have healed their wound. But they didn't want to be healed. They wanted to cling to their idol. And yet Jonah chapter 2 verse 8 tells us that those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that would come to them. And that is what Jerusalem did in the time of the Lord Jesus Christ. They forfeited the grace of God because they spurned and turned against and crucified the Son of God. And yet, in the goodness of God, what they meant as evil, God meant as good. Their very idolatrous wickedness that that crucified Jesus was the very means by which they could have been cured. In fact, even today, any and all who would be willing to come to Jesus today could be cured of this human condition of idolatry. And I would suggest to you that the cure that Jesus brings has at least two components to it. First of all, Jesus cures his people of their idolatry by first of all pardoning us of the condemnation, the very condemnation that Micah warned against Samaria and eventually against Jerusalem, uh, the very condemnation that would come to any and all today who cling to their idols and forfeit the grace of God. A pardon could come that would circumvent that would redirect the judgment that would fall us because of our idolatry, because it was placed upon Jesus. Jesus took away our sin. He took away our guilt. He took away our shame, and that was all of it. Even even our sin and our guilt and our shame connected to our penchant for idolatry. Jesus died and was raised again that we might be pardoned. But Jesus, in being raised again and ascending to the right hand of the Father, sent his spirit into the hearts and lives of those who turn and trust in him. And it's that 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 provides us another aspect of the kind of cure that you and I can experience. We're pardoned of our sins of idolatry, but we're now empowered by the very indwelling spirit of God to rise above and to live a a life in a new direction, walking away from, fleeing from, keeping ourselves from idols because of the new life that's breathed into us, the new desires that are instilled into our hearts. Oh, would you be willing? Would you turn to Jesus to be cured, to be pardoned, to be empowered 
so that you and I today and you and I for the unfolding of this week, you and I could be pardoned of our idolatrous ways and yet we could be empowered to fight against the remaining vestiges and surges and impulses of idolatry in our lives and in our souls. Idols cannot give us pardon. Idols cannot grant peace to our hearts. Idols cannot solve our problems. Idols cannot define our identities. But Jesus can pardon us. Jesus can give us peace. Jesus can solve our problems. Jesus can give us a new identity. And Jesus can give us a new power to fight against the idols that still lurk and remain in our hearts. The the idols that are so commonly attached to our emotions and our desires that remind us that we still have idols in our hearts. It is the Lord Jesus himself, the power of his spirit for all who come to Jesus are given new life and are afforded the ability to fight against the remaining remnants of idolatry in our souls so that we truly can be a people who would love the Lord God above all else with our hearts, with our minds, with our souls, and with our strength. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word Thank you for what your word teaches us. Father, thank you for not only confronting us in our idolatry, but in curing us of our idolatry through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So Father, may may we honor you above all else. May our joy, may our delight, may our strength, May our hope, may our peace, may the satisfaction of our soul be inseparably tethered to honoring you and trusting you and loving you and obeying you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing the song together.